0: If you got a Bible, you can open up Matthew chapter 1. I don't know about you, but around our house, when uh, we do have a little time to turn on the television and it doesn't happen to go on cartoons, uh, Kim has gotten into this show called Fixer Upper. Anybody watch that show? You know I'm talking about? It's a, it's a good show. It's a, it's, it stars Chip and Joanna Gaines, and if you've never seen the show, basically the premise of the show is a couple will come in, they're looking for a new house. And Chip and Joanna Gaines will take them to three different houses, what they consider are the worst houses in the best neighborhoods. They're these run-down houses, and they come in and give them this idea of how they can fix it up, how they can turn this house into something spectacular. And they'll go in and they'll show them all these different things, and the couple will pick a house, and then they'll begin construction on this house. And inevitably, through the process, there's always a point in the show where Joanna, um, who loves antiques, will go shopping for antiques. And she'll take her husband there, and he's always doing something stupid while they're there. But, but inevitably, they'll come home with something. And, and if you watch the show much, you realize that Joanna is addicted to antiques. She has this whole warehouse full of things that she's found at these antique stores that suddenly go from being junk to being treasure in her eyes with how she sees she can use these things in these houses. And at the end of the show, every time they come out and they, pull, they say, Here's your fixture-upper, and they pull apart the sign, and the people go, oh, and they cry and stuff, and all this kind of stuff, and everybody boohoos and everybody smiles. But it's always neat to watch how, in this show, what once was junk becomes treasure again. What was was considered old, you know, because you think about all these antiques at these antique stores. At one point in time, this was something that was sitting on someone's shelf that they got bored with that they said, I'm tired of looking at that, that picture frame, or that, that you know, steering wheel, or whatever it happens to be. You, you know, It always seems to be that, that candelabra, that, that whatever it is, that they, they say, you know what, I'm tired of that. And it goes from their house to a junk pile to an antique store, and then someone takes it and makes something new with it. Well, there's some truth to what's going on there, because the reality is sometimes we can see something for so long that we get bored with it. You know what happens with the, uh, the shows we watch on TV? You know, you watch a show, you, you get hooked on a show, then it goes into reruns, then you get bored with the show because you know what's going to happen. And it can happen with books that you read at times. I know, like, for instance, at my house, uh, one of my five-year-old twins, his name is Will, he has gotten addicted to this book called Weather Climate. It's one of these books that's got the little flip-up tabs. And about every night for an entire month, he's wanting to read this same book over and over and over again. To the point where I've got it memorized, he's got it memorized, and he can't even read, but yet he keeps wanting to read it. And he always wants to read like two pages and that's it, over and over again. Well, the sad truth is is that sometimes it can happen to us when it comes to Scripture. That we can read it and we can see it and we can get so exposed to it that we get bored with it especially when it comes to the Christmas story we read year after year of the appearances of Gabriel of the shepherds of the star of the wise men of the of the manger and all these different scenes and if we're not careful we can get we can get tired with it it loses its wonder it loses its excitement we don't have that sense of awe when we read it in these past couple of weeks, as I've been thinking through what to pray, what to preach on, I began to pray, God. Okay, how can I make an old story new again? Because I know we've heard sermons on wise men, we've heard sermons on shepherds, and all these different things. And I started asking myself, okay, what could I possibly preach on? So I opened up to Matthew chapter one, and I just started reading. So let's go to Matthew chapter one, verse one. I'm going to show you how far I got. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that's as far as God let me go. Because this is what the question he brought to my mind. As I was reading through this, this is what struck me. Why would Matthew, in recording the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and all that he could tell about Jesus with his crucifixion, his resurrection, all the miracles, why would he start his gospel with a genealogy. Why would he feel the need to start here with telling us where Jesus came from? Now, for some, I know genealogies are a big deal. I know in my family, on, on Kim's side of the family, they have this Williams book. She's a Williams. And they have this giant Williams book that gives their family tree way, way back. I'm not even sure how far back it goes, but when her papa was still alive, he could show you the pages where his, his immediate family's names were. He could tell you where Kim's name was, and he had them like earmarked. He was so proud of that book and of his family history. Now, unfortunately for me, I don't really know too much. I can't really say much about my genealogy other than the fact I did have a great-grandfather named Odor Allen James, and I've always thought that would be a good name to pass on to another child to call my kid Odor. Um, but then also... According to my my papa, I don't know if it's really true, but he always said we were related to Jesse James. I don't really know. I strongly doubt it. I sure can't shoot like him. But it's just interesting to think about. But whatever we think of these things, and however much we know, one thing is true, that for the Jews, a genealogy was extremely important. You see, because a lot hinged on knowing your family tree in that culture. It determined your land inheritance. It determines one's standing in the Jewish community. It proved one's family line. And for, for a tribe like the Levites, it proved their right to serve as priests. You see this, you read this, in the time of Ezra, when they came back to Jerusalem, there were some who claimed to be priests who were excluded because they could not prove that their family line went back to Levi. But the truth is, is that, I mean, let's be honest, how many times do we come to the Bible, that we open up Scripture, and we get to those genealogies, and what do we do with them? Such and such begat, such and such begat, such and such. And we kind of skim over them, right? We kind of skip over them, because we don't really understand what it is. And so this morning, I want us to think about why this is so important. Why would Matthew feel like, I need to start by telling you, this is the book about Jesus, who is the son of David, the son of Abraham. But in order to really understand this, I need you to play a little game of pretend with me. I want you to imagine that you have never read the Bible before. That you know nothing about Scripture. I know that's extremely hard to do. But I want you to imagine that you have just been handed this book for the very first time in your life. You have never heard the name of Jesus. You don't know anything about it. Now let's just imagine that you opened it up and you began to read in Genesis chapter 1. Now what would you come across? You'd begin reading in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and you would read about God's creative work about how he made the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, all the animals, all the birds, all the fish and how he made Adam and Eve and how he placed them in a perfect paradise called the Garden of Eden and how he gave them everything they could possibly need and how perfect this scenario was that here was man and woman in the perfect place. And there was no sin, there was no death, there was no pain. But as you continued to read, you would see that you wouldn't make it past the third chapter of the Bible before things came unraveled. And man and woman fell to temptation as the serpent tricked them. And you would read about how God began to pronounce judgment. But you would also read in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 when God was speaking to the serpent and he said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now we, as Bible-believing Christians, know this to be the, the first messianic prophecy, right? This is the first foretelling of the coming of Christ. Now, but remember, you haven't read the Bible yet. This is your first time. And so you probably in this moment would say, well, what's that mean? What does it mean that there's going to be this this offspring of Eve who's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent? You'd probably start thinking, okay, who is this snake crusher? Who is this one that is going to set everything right? Well, it wouldn't take you long to realize that it's not one of Eve's direct descendants because Cain kills Abel. And honestly, the Bible doesn't say much about Seth other than the fact that it begins to trace a genealogy through his line. You would read a long list of names of different men, some of whom are described as walking with God. But at the same time, you would read about how man began a downward spiral into sin that brought us to the point of the great flood. Because man had become so sinful, God had determined it was time to start over. But in that moment, you might think to yourself, well, maybe Noah. Maybe Noah is this person, this offspring that's going to set things right. Because, you know, the Bible describes him as a righteous man. It says he walked with God, and he's the patriarch of the only family that's spared. But even he demonstrates the fact that he's an imperfect sinner. Now, if you continue to read, you'd, you'd come next to, you would read next of Abraham. And you would read of how God calls Abraham and how he blesses Abraham and how he promises to make Abraham a great nation and to bless the entire world through this one man's descendants. Not just the Israelites, but the entire world. But it becomes, yet again, far too obvious that he is not the one, that he is yet another sinner. But, as you would read, you would realize that God has now chosen a family. That it would be a son of Abraham who would fulfill God's promise. Now later on in Genesis, you'd read of God's choice of the tribe of Judah. Through his father's words, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 8, it says this, "...Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you." Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion lion and and as a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Yet once again, as you continue to read, you would see that Judah is yet another messed up man who makes many mistakes. But God has chosen a tribe of the son of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah. You know, you could follow this pattern on and on throughout the Old Testament until you come to the point of David, the man after God's own heart, the greatest earthly king of the nation of Israel, the man of whom God said in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Yet even this great king stumbles into sin and falls into adultery. But it's through the child with that woman, Bathsheba, that God continues to work. And the pattern you see as you would read through scripture for that first time is that God continuously uses imperfect people to fulfill his purpose. And so as we trace this line of God's chosen people all the way through the Old Testament, it is really no wonder that Matthew would begin with a genealogy. Because the fact that must be established first, if Jesus is the Son of God, if Jesus is the One, is this question. Is He the Son of David? The Son of Abraham? The One of whom all these prophecies have foretold. Let's pick it up in verse 2, and let's read down through verse 17. And then I want us to look at some le- two lessons we can learn from this. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Terah by, or Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, And Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Aesop, and Aesop the father of Jehoshaphat. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jokonia was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abuid, and Abuid the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, so who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Two lessons I want us to see from these verses this morning. is First of all, this. God does not abandon His promises. As we read through the thousands of years of the Old Testament, all the way to the time of Jesus' birth, many of of those years recorded in the genealogy here, what we discover is that God is passionately and purposefully bringing His promise to fulfillment, even through the imperfect lives of His people. In fact, I think it's true that God gets even more of the glory when he works through imperfect people. Then when he seems to work through circumstances where you think, how can God get through this? How can he make something out of this mess? But yet he does. I believe God shines even brighter. We see evidence of how God does this in some of the names that are mentioned here. Now generally in historic genealogies, there are a couple of typical patterns that we need to know. First of all, in, in genealogies, they rarely included women, only men. And it was especially unlikely to do as Matthew would do here and to include the names of women that weren't Israelites and then also women that weren't perfect in their character. That Many times that if, if a woman was going to be named, it was some woman who was ex- extremely noble or something like this that would, bring, you know, would make, make someone look good. But in this instance, Matthew includes some names, which we'll talk about in a minute, that might have brought some disgrace. But also, too, something else we need to know about genealogies is that oftentimes they would skip generations, just as Matthew does here. And we'll talk about this in a minute. That when you look at Matthew and Luke, there's an unequal number of generations. And Matthew covers a kind of an unreasonable number of years with fewer names, but that was common in these genealogies. But in skipping those generations, oftentimes the person writing it would remove names that would defame the character of the king. But instead, Matthew includes them. I mean, let's just think about the characters Matthew uses here. He includes five women. Tamar, the widowed daughter-in-law of Judah, who tricked him into impregnating her. Rahab, the woman who was a prostitute from Jericho, but yet who had come to place her faith in God and had hidden the spies. Ruth, the Moabite woman whose people had been cursed by God, but yet who God chose to work through because of her faithfulness. Bathsheba, who was not named by name here, but was called the wife of Uriah, the woman who David had an affair with and whose husband David had killed. And finally, Mary, the pregnant but yet betrothed virgin. Now, any earthly king might be tempted to blot those names out for one reason or another, but Matthew chooses to show those names off. But it's not just about women here. Matthew includes some several kind of notorious men here, men who made a mess of Israel. For instance, just to name two, it was Rehoboam, the son of Solomon who divided the kingdom. How would you like that for your legacy? what did you accomplish as a king? Well, I I divided Israel. (laughs) I led to the the split. Or Jeconiah, the one of whom God said that none of his biological descendants would ever sit on the throne. Just to name a couple. But yet here, as my study Bible put it, Jesus' line is made up of men, women, adulterers, prostitutes, heroes, and Gentiles. And Jesus will be the savior of them all. And so God continued to work out His promise, even through the tarnished history of His people. And if nothing else, it demonstrates God's committed love to us. That even though we were a mess, even though His people were a mess, and at every turn there seemed to be something going on, God worked through thousands of years to bring us to the point that a baby would be born in a manger that from Genesis 3.15 until the time Jesus was born, God never failed on His promise. That even when the people of Israel were sent off into exile, God was still working to fulfill His promise. second thing we need to see from this is this, that all of Scripture points to Jesus. And when we trace this storyline of Scripture we were reminded very quickly that each and every page points to the Christ. That when Matthew writes of Jesus being the son of Abraham, the son of David, he's he's emphasizing that Jesus couldn't just be some random child by some random woman. But instead, if he was going to be the fulfillment of prophecy, then he had to come in a particular time to a particular family that the Old Testament basically serves as a road map that leads us to the birth of a Savior. That He was and is the promised one. The son of Abraham who could bless all nations. And the son of David who will sit on the throne forever. Now like I mentioned a minute ago, it's worth noting here that, that there are differences when you look at Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy and Luke chapter 3 verse 23 through 38, you will find some differences, but there's a couple of different ways that we can think about this. If you were to look at him, you'll see that there's an unequal number of names. You'll also see that there's times when when the two genealogies split, and then they come back together. And you can think, well, how does that work? Well, there's a couple of different options to the way we can interpret this that still hold Scripture as inerrant. And the first is this, is that we can look at it like this to think, well, okay, Matthew tells of Joseph's lineage while Luke tells of Mary's lineage. And it makes sense because if you think about it, if you read the Nativity stories, Matthew seems to speak primarily from Joseph's perspective, right? He tells of Gabriel's visit to Joseph. And everything seems to come from his point of view. Whereas Luke tells the story from Mary's perspective. It's Mary's visit with Gabriel. It's Mary's trip to John or to see Elizabeth. All those kind of things. And so it seems to be that the two come from different, two different angles. However, there's a couple of problems with this view. First of all, like I mentioned before, ancient genealogies were typically not traced through the life of the mother. And so it, was kind of, it would be kind of unusual for Luke to do so. Not that he couldn't, but it would be unusual. But if they're both biological lines then how did they split and come back together? That just doesn't really... There's there's some difficulties there unless people had two different names. But there's another way that we can look at this that I kind of lean toward. And that's that Matthew is giving the royal line to the throne, whereas Luke is giving the biological line. In other words, a royal line would be who has the right to sit on the throne of David. Now this may not always pass to a biological son. Let's imagine that a king did not have a son, or, did, or if he did have a son, maybe the king was not, that son was not fit to rule. And so maybe that right to rule would go to a nephew, or to a cousin, or to some other person. And so the idea here is that Matthew is tracing the line through who had the right to sit on the throne. Whereas Luke is tracing the line through who was the biological descendant of David. Because you see it even at the beginning, Matthew traces through Solomon who sat on the throne where Luke traces through Nathan. And so when we use that interpretation, it makes everything work together too. Because there's something else we need to understand is that when we use the term the father of in genealogy, it didn't always refer to a biological son. Because if you read Matthew, you'll see that sometimes it's a a grandfather to a grandson or to a great-grandson. Or maybe it was an adopted son, as with the case of Joseph to Jesus. But when we assume this interpretation, when we say, okay, maybe this is it, what does it tell us? It tells us that Jesus not only had the right to sit on the throne because of biological descent, but also because of royal descent. That the right had passed to him. And that all the Old Testament was moving to bring these two lines back together in the Christ. But this also changes the way in which we should read the Old Testament in a couple of ways. First, consider it like this. Okay, if that's true, if Jesus is, 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 if, all the, if all of Scripture points to Jesus, then think about it like this. Is this a book of 66 smaller books that tell individual stories? Or is this one book written by 66 different authors that tells one overarching story of God's work in the world? I believe the second is true. I believe that even though it was written by 66 different authors, or not 66 different authors, but many different authors, over the course of thousands of years, God was orchestrating so that it would come together to tell one grand story of God's love and God's work in this world. But as believers today, sometimes we can get tired with certain parts of it we can unintentionally disregard certain chunks of it and think, well, that's not really relevant to me today. Why do I need to read about Leviticus? Why do I need to read of the Old Testament? Why can't I just spend my time in the New Testament and just I'll just focus on the words of Jesus? I'll just read the, I'll just read the epistles because that's all the practical stuff. I'll just stick there. I can tell you from practical experience as a youth minister, it is far easier for me to just stay in the New Testament. But to do so, to to approach Scripture in such a haphazard way, gives us a haphazard understanding of the story of Scripture. Pastor and author David Murray says it like this, I would estimate that the Old Testament forms less than 10% of most Christians' Bible reading. Remove the Psalms and the Proverbs, and we're probably down to less than 5%. And so, if we're not in the Word, especially the older part of the Word, how can we truly understand the work of God through all of history? I mean, just consider the way that Jesus dealt with this issue. If you were to look in Luke chapter 24, flip there real quick. Luke chapter 24, verse 25. This is the. Uh, this is the telling of the, the road to Emmaus. This is after Jesus' resurrection. If you remember, he's walking, or there's two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. Jesus has already been resurrected. They're discussing what all has been going on because they're very confused. And suddenly, this third character appears with them and begins to walk with them. They don't recognize it to be Jesus. But in verse 25, Luke chapter 24, verse 25, let's read down through 27. And let's see how Jesus dealt with the Old Testament. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's a euphemism for the Old Testament. When we say the beginning with Moses, they're not talking about Exodus. They're talking about the books of Moses. And all the prophets, that's a way of saying the Old Testament. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And skip down to verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses to these things. And so my point is this, unless we understand the storyline of Scripture and how Jesus fulfills it, how could we possibly say to someone else, Thus it is written. Jesus didn't just point to the things He did. He pointed to the Old Testament and said, It was talking about me. Jesus looked at them and said, Look, let me take you back to Genesis. Let me take you to Exodus and Leviticus. And let me show you where I was in that passage. It was all about Him. And so from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation, when it says, Come, Lord Jesus... It is all speaking of God's work to bring about that one promise to bring everything back to Him. But also, when we get this idea that all of Scripture tells one story that is about God's work, it reminds us that the Bible is not about us. That the Bible is not simply some self-help book that we open up to make us into better people. That all these Old Testament stories are more than just moralistic writings to teach us how to have a better life, to teach us how to slay our giants, how to be a better you, how to get out of the lion's den of life. But instead, these are are stories that tell of God's love and God's work to bring about the Son and to bring about the kingdom of the Son. I want to finish this morning with a story that was... It was written by Jared Wilson um, in his book called Gospel Wakefulness. Let me just read this. It says, In a well-appointed study of a professor of history, in a prestigious university sits a brick-sized piece of the Berlin Wall. It sits on the floor because he uses it as a doorstop. He's not ignorant of the piece's historical significance. As a historian, he is deeply informed of the struggle attached to the wall. To the shame it symbolized and the division, both literal and cultural, that it created. He not only knows about, but also teaches on the international reverberations that occurred when the great emblem of the communist stronghold in Western Europe finally came down. Meanwhile, in a small, dingy apartment in Midwest America lives an elderly immigrant woman who sells newspapers and fresh-cut flowers during the day and cleans an office building in the evenings to get by. On an iron shelf in her bedroom sits a small, lidless glass jar, and in that jar is a piece of the Berlin Wall the size of a marble. She's often held the piece of rock in her withered hand and wept. Her husband did not live to see the wall come down. Her cousin, cousin was one of the estimated 5,000 people who tried to escape from the communist eastern bloc into western Berlin. He was one of the estimated 100 to 200 people killed by border guards, border guards in the attempt. He was one of the, those crushed by the Iron Curtain. So she is one of those who knows the unique confluence of the memorial pain and joy in having intimately felt how the world once was and in having experienced how the whole world was changed. She knows what it feels like to carry an ocean full of grief and longing, what it feels like to cling to a sliver of hope, and what it feels like when that sliver of hope, a crack in the great barrier of darkness gives way to a break of glorious fulfillment and release. When the professor hears the epic Brandenburg Gate speech in which President Ronald Reagan famously commanded, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. He admires it as a watershed moment in history, as iconic as a soundbite as from the annals of history as any. But when the woman hears Miss, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall, she is stirred always. When the professor speaks of the fall of the Berlin Wall as an earth-shattering event, he really does mean to communicate the radical nature of the event. He really does understand this. But the woman knows that the fall of the Berlin Wall was an earth-shattering event deep down in her bones. I don't know if you realize this. There's two ways we can see this book. We can look at Scripture as just a book that tells some good stories, that teaches us how to be good people. And we can admire it for its quality, we can admire it for all the great things it teaches, or we can feel it in our bones that this is something amazing. That when we come to a passage like Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, that it is speaking of the moment where the wall broke. where God came crashing through and showed that he was fulfilling his promises all along. This morning I ask you, do you feel it in your bones? And when you come to Scripture, do you really feel it in your bones that God has been at work and God is working? Today, have you given your life to him? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? If not, let today be that day. And if you're here today and you're a believer and you're still in a, at a point where maybe your faith has gotten dull, maybe it's become you've become immune to the effects of when you read Scripture, I ask today that you would pray and ask God to lift that cloud from your eyes and allow you to see with fresh eyes once again the glory of the story of God's work. Let's pray. Father, we do come this morning just so thankful for the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we come this Christmas season just excited to know that we are celebrating not some fictitious event, but a real event when a real baby came to a real manger, to real parents, and walked on this earth and taught and perform miracles not just to make people feel good about themselves but to fulfill thousands of years of prophecy and to show your love for your creation most importantly for us Father we come here in this moment in a time of invitation asking that you would move God, I pray that if there are those in this room who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that today would be that day that they would surrender their lives to the baby in the manger who became the Savior on the cross. And for us who are believers in this room, God, I pray that you would renew our hearts today, that we would come into this Christmas season excited once again to celebrate the coming of our King, and that we would look forward, that we would look ahead, with anticipation to the day when our King would come again. It would, we would be reminded that we do not serve a dead Savior, but a risen Savior who is coming again. And we would pray steadfastly every day that, that Jesus would come. Father, in this time of invitation, I pray that you would act, that you would move. And it's in Jesus' name that we do pray these things.